Okay, this morning, we are uh, finishing up, just before our weekend away, finishing up our summer series in the parables, stories that Jesus told. We've, uh, this is our fifth and final parable. We're going to spend our time now in Matthew 18, looking at verses 21 to 35. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. Uh, please do keep it open. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Although I'm not actually going to read the passage up front. I don't want to spoil the surprises that are in there. Maybe you've never heard this parable before, or perhaps you've forgotten some of the twists and turns. So we'll read it as we make our way through it this morning. Uh, Now, I thought I'd begin with a question, and recognizing there's already been a lot of participation this morning with the extra clapping, uh, you don't have to shout out an answer. You can nod or shake your head if you like, or just answer on the inside. But um, have you ever found it hard to forgive someone? Have you ever found it hard to forgive someone? Maybe it's someone who sinned against you in a big way, or hurt you in a painful way. Or perhaps it's someone who upsets you in, a, in much more small but persistent ways. The idea of vengeance and payback often come far more naturally to us than forgiveness. Sometimes we might even go so far as to think, as apparently King Louis XII of France once said, nothing smells so sweet as the dead body of your enemy. (laughs) We've never had a quote like that before. (laughs) Maybe never will again. Forgiveness can be a powerful and a beautiful thing, but it can also be an intensely difficult thing. And because forgiveness isn't easy, it's also natural for us to wrestle with questions about it. Do we have to forgive? When should we forgive? Who should we forgive? How are we to balance forgiveness with justice? Those are all good questions to ask. And throughout Matthew 18, Jesus answers a good few of them as he teaches his disciples how to respond to those who are caught in sin. But all that Jesus has to say in the first half of the chapter raises one more question in Peter's mind in the second half of Matthew 18. And it's this question that is going to be the focus of the parable that we're going to look at together this morning. Peter's question to Jesus is simply this. How often should we forgive? How often should we forgive? How much forgiveness is too much? And that's the title I've given to this morning's message. How much forgiveness is too much? So, verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Does forgiveness have a limit? Peter's asking. If the same person falls into sin, maybe even into the same sin, over and over and over again, how often must we forgive them? Who here hasn't asked themselves a similar question? Especially when we've been hurt or when our patience has been tested. How many times do I have to forgive this person? Perhaps we tell ourselves, all right, I'll forgive them one last time, but they better not do it again. If they do, then I'm going to... This is for the Marvel fans. I'm going to go full Hulk mode and they'll be in a whole world of trouble. How many times should we forgive someone? Now, the rabbis in Jesus' day thought that to forgive the same person three times was sufficient to fulfill your duty to God and to people. Peter, however, maybe because he's spent more time with Jesus 
And he's seen that Jesus is much more gracious than the other teachers. Oh, he, he pushes the boat right out into generous waters and asks whether perhaps he ought to forgive his brother as many as seven times. And we want to go, well done, Peter. That's pretty generous. That's more than double what the scribes and the Pharisees would do. The problem is, of course, Peter's still thinking just like the scribes and the Pharisees do. He's still thinking in terms of keeping count. He's still planning on keeping a tally of other people's offences stuck to his fridge, if he had a fridge, with a final numbered box on there. And if it gets ticked, it will send Peter into full justice and vengeance mode against the person who has been persistently trying his patience. That's what Peter's thinking. But Jesus isn't interested in setting limits and keeping count at all. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And in saying 77 times, Jesus isn't simply setting a higher limit on how many times we should forgive. No, he's telling Peter loudly and clearly, just stop counting. Stop keeping track of how many times your brother or sister sins against you and how many times you've had to forgive them. Instead, go on and on and on forgiving. Keep on forgiving endlessly. Don't keep a tally. Don't keep a chart. Don't carry a single grudge. Over in Luke 17, verse 4, Jesus says, Even if your brother sins against you seven times in a single day, and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So you see, Jesus is saying here, we are to forgive the seventh offense and the 77th offense and the 777,000th offense just as readily as the first. Question is, why? And the answer is because as Jesus now goes on to explain, That's what God is like, and that's what life in God's kingdom is like as well. In God's kingdom, there is inconceivably great forgiveness. And that's the first of uh, two headings I've got for us this morning. First of all, in God's kingdom, there is inconceivably great forgiveness. Verse 23, Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, just to pause things there, there are two ways to kind of try and measure the magnitude of this debt that this servant owes. Both ways come up with a number that will not fit on the screen of your calculator. The first way is by doing some currency conversion. And maybe you've done a bit of that recently if you've perhaps been on holiday or you're planning on going away somewhere abroad and you've sat down and tried to work out how many euros or dollars there are to the pounds. And if you thought that was pretty alarming at the moment, this bit of currency conversion is far, far worse. Because in New Testament times, one talent was worth about 20 years' wages for a common labourer. So in modern terms, if a labourer earns... I don't know, 25,000 a year, one talent would equal 500,000 pounds, half a million pounds. That's one talent. And so the 10,000 talents this servant in the parable owes would therefore be equivalent to about 200,000 years of wages or six billion pounds of debt. 
That's the first way to try and quantify the greatness of his debt. The other way is simply to recognize that Jesus is here deliberately taking the largest Greek numeral that they had and combining it with the largest unit of currency that they had. It's like me saying, you owe a million, billion, trillion, gazillion pounds. The point is, this servant owes the king the largest number you could possibly think of. An astronomical amount that he cannot possibly even begin to repay. And this unpayable debt is, of course, just a picture of the incalculable debt of sin that all of us owe to God. The debt for sin that stands against even a single sinner is incalculable and unimaginable. And we all, like this servant, once stood like him in the deepest possible debt before God. And like this king, God has promised to one day settle all accounts. One day God promises all debts must be paid. And this man cannot pay. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And it's important to realize here, uh, there's nothing going on here that is unfair or unjust. Nothing excessive about this verdict. The king is simply doing what is right and fair and just. But from the servant's point of view, of course, the verdict is devastating. What can he possibly do with such a debt? He realizes, of course, there's only one thing to do. He must plead for mercy from the king. So verse 26, the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. He prays somewhat like the tax collector in another of Jesus' parables in Luke 18, who we're told Luke 18, 13 would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now the tax collector's prayer was actually a better one. He recognized there was nothing that he could ever offer to God to make up for his sins. Yet here in this morning's parable, this man is asking for patience and he's asking for time to repay the king, which he ought to already realize is an impossible promise to keep. But then let's not judge him harshly. How many of us can relate to this mistake? When coming under the conviction of sin, realizing how desperately in debt to God we are, how desperately we need God's mercy, we do want and hope to make amends, don't we? Maybe we do find ourselves promising, I'll, I'll never do it again. I'll make up for it by being a better person in future. It's kind of not a bad instinct or desire to want to change. Well, it's not. But it is a futile thing to suggest that we can repay what we owe. It reveals in that moment we don't still fully appreciate how great our debt of sin is before a holy God. But at least, at least this servant is he's still recognizing he needs the king's mercy. And what happens next surely far exceeds anything he could ever hope for or dreamed of. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him. And forgave him the debt. In response to his plea for mercy, the king doesn't just grant him a temporary reprieve. Time to repay. He doesn't even go further still to 
forgive him a portion of the debt that he owes, you know, maybe a quarter or a half or even three quarters. No, out of sheer pity for this undeserving debtor, the king forgives him all that he owes. His debt was incalculable. His penalty was insurmountable, but in the blink of an eye, the king wipes it all away. All of it gone. Every single penny. His whole weight lifted from this desperate man's shoulders in a heartbeat. This is unfathomable mercy. This is radical grace. This is inconceivably great forgiveness. And of course, we are meant to see in this king's actions an extraordinary picture of God's heart towards us. This is what God does with the infinite debt of sin of all those who come to him. Nothing in their hands to bring or barter with him. Simply coming to the cross to cling, broken and confessing our need for mercy. Now no doubt most of us have been in financial debt at some point in our lives. Maybe it's an overdraft or it's a loan or a credit card or a mortgage on a house. Perhaps that's a very present struggle for you right now. And whether you're presently in some form of debt or not, we all know instinctively what a relief it is. What a weight of burden would just be lifted from our backs were all of our debts and borrowing to just be settled and paid in full. What a spring in our step that would give us, wouldn't it? And a smile on our face. Perhaps we, we imagine it would even take five or ten years off our face, making us feel inside and out just far younger and happier and much more carefree. Yet all of our financial borrowing across a whole lifetime is but a few pence or less compared to the unimaginable debt we owe to God because of our sin. Our debt in sin was deep, infinitely, terrifyingly deep. There was simply no price tag large enough that you could put on it. And the weight of that debt, if we were truly conscious of it, was crushing and suffocating and unbearable. All other debts pale into insignificance compared to it and compared to the eternal penalty that must be paid for it. And yet, God, looking on us in great pity and with the deepest compassion, has made a way for us to be cleared of all that debt and forgiven of all our sin. But how? How can God justly cancel it and so completely forgive all our trespasses and sins? Colossians 2 verse 14, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The Father sent his Son to be nailed along with our record of debt to the cross. Christ bore sin's penalty, our debt in our place. And because he did, in the words of one writer, the moment a person acknowledges the sinfulness of his sin and turns to the only saviour from sin, his mountain of debt to God is paid in full forever. 
inconceivably great and full forgiveness has been granted to every single Christian believer. And that ought, if we've truly grasped it, to melt our hearts and change us forever. It ought to lead us to sing with a glad heart, just like Christian did at the foot of the cross in Pilgrim's Progress. He, he, he said and he sang, Christ hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in, till I came hither. What a place is this, must here be the beginning of my bliss, must here the burden fall from off my back, must here the strings that bound it to me crack, blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Oh, what relief and rejoicing and release there is in being forgiven by God through Christ at Calvary. There is no sweeter relief in this life than this. And such an experience ought to so liberate us, so set us free, that we never look at God and we never look at other people in the same way again. Such grace ought to just begin to remake us into the image of the one who has so graciously saved us. Making us people of boundless forgiveness like him. That's what should happen. And yet in the next unexpected twist in Jesus' parable, it is met here instead with, this is our second of two headings this morning, it is met here instead with inconceivably great in gratitude. Inconceivably great in gratitude. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Only moments or minutes after being completely released from such an unfathomably large debt, this same servant is choking another servant and demanding he pay up what he owes. And and it becomes even more shocking when we notice just how little in comparison this second servant owes compared to the first. It is a trifling and paltry and pitiful sum he owes just a hundred denarii. Sure, it's not nothing, it's still money, or there'd be nothing to forgive, but it's, this, this amount is only equal to about four months' wages. Four months' wages, meaning that if we're doing the maths, it is about a half a million times smaller than what the first servant had owed the king. Half a million times smaller than what he's just been completely forgiven. And that same sense of scale and proportion is just as true, if not more so, when another person sins against us. It's not that when someone sins against us that that their sin is nothing. It's not that it couldn't cause us harm or hurt, but it is infinitesimally small compared to the infinite measure of our sin against God, for which we have already been completely forgiven. What's also so striking here in this encounter is the man who's now in a chokehold, 
being told he must pay, he falls down and pleads for patience and mercy, just as the one choking him had done just a few, min- few moments ago to the king. His words, in fact, are practically identical. Jesus wants us to make the link. Have patience with me and I will pay you. You'd think that would have jogged the first servant's memory. This man I'm choking, he's just like me. Simply another debtor like me in need of grace. But that vastly greater forgiveness just granted to him by the king is already a long distant memory. It's done, it's dusted, all but forgotten. And so he refuses to forgive. And instead he throws this debtor into prison until he can repay him. Well, what are are we to make of this? How are we meant to respond and feel as we hear this? Clearly, we're meant to feel how ludicrous this is and how maddening and wrong this is. That this man, forgiven of so much, will not even begin to forgive so little. We're meant to be stunned by his ingratitude, shocked by how little he appreciates the mercy and the kindness shown to him by the king. To be forgiven... And yet not forgive is unacceptable. To be forgiven and not forgive is unacceptable. So verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they saw that he could not forgive. They were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all. All that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. What's hard to miss here is that the servant's ungrateful and unforgiving heart reveals at root not just confusion or forgetfulness or absent-mindedness, it reveals a wicked heart. It is wicked, says the king, to have been forgiven so much and yet remain so unforgiving. And the king will not tolerate such inconceivably great ingratitude in his household. And so he sends this man to the debtor's prison. What a sorry tale this is. This man who was at first threatened with justice, but instead experienced inconceivable mercy, well now, having despised the mercy of the king, is sentenced once again to receive cold, hard justice. Delivered over to the jailers until he can repay his own unpayable debts. It is a terrible, terrible end. And then Jesus ends the parable with these words. Verse 35 so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's the lesson of the parable right there. Those who refuse to forgive others but instead demand only justice will receive only justice, not forgiveness, from God for themselves. We must, as Christians, forgive one another from the heart. 
Now, does this mean then that there is something that we must do to make us worthy of being saved, that we must forgive others in order to be forgiven by God? No, no, absolutely not. It's not forgive in order to be forgiven. Salvation is always of grace. And Christ's blood covers all the believer's sins, including all those times we fail to quickly forgive. But it does mean that we are to forgive because we've already been forgiven. We have a duty to forgive. An obligation to pass on the forgiveness we've received by in turn forgiving others. Again and again and again without count. Without a chart on our fridge. Without a record. Without measure. More than that, if we've truly been forgiven, we will want to forgive others and go on forgiving. We won't want to carry on carrying resentment with us. Because once we've grasped the immeasurable weight of our past debt and the infinite magnitude of God's mercy towards us, forgiving us all of that sin and debt, we will love and adore that mercy And it will increasingly be our joy and our delight. It will be our heartfelt desire to be more like our king by extending that mercy to other people. If that isn't happening, if we really can't bring ourselves to forgive, it might just reveal that our own hearts have not yet received God's forgiveness. It it might. It might be that we need, first of all, to go to Jesus to fall on his mercy and maybe to be saved for the very first time. That's not a bad thing to realize at all this morning. That perhaps our unwillingness to forgive might reveal we're not actually yet saved. That's not a bad realization. So long as we respond to it by running straight to Jesus to confess our sins. Maybe even confess that sin of unforgiveness and be once and for all forgiven. Then our hearts will begin to truly be changed and we will begin to be set free to forgive. It also does us immense good to forgive as well. Holding grudges and allowing bitterness to grow up in our lives is one of the most self-destructive things that we can do. It will eat away at us. An anonymous saint of long ago once wrote, Revenge indeed seems often sweet to men, but oh, it is only sugared poison. Only sweetened gall and its aftertaste is bitter as hell. Forgiving, enduring love alone is sweet and blissful. It enjoys peace and the consciousness of God's favor. By forgiving, it gives away and annihilates the injury. It treats the injurer as if he had not injured and therefore feels no more the smart and sting that he had inflicted. Forgiveness is a shield from which all the fiery darts of the wicked one harmless rebound. Forgiveness brings heaven to earth and heaven's peace into the sinful heart. Forgiveness is the image of God, the forgiving father and an advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. Forgiveness is not easy, but it is, in the end, sweet and full of peace and healing. And in calling us to forgive, God has not left us on our own. He has not left us without divine power to help us forgive. Not only does his own empowering spirit now dwell within us, increasingly to grow in us the fruits of love and patience and kindness from which forgiveness flows, 
But he's also given us, God has, a great ocean of gospel truth to continually bathe our hearts in as well. The 19th century Scottish pastor, William Arnott, once told the story of a traveller in Burma who, after fording a river, discovered that his body was covered with small leeches, hungrily sucking on his blood. The man's first impulse was to pull them off, but his servant warned him against it, explaining that to do so would leave part of the leeches buried in the skin and cause serious infection. Instead, the friend prepared a warm bath for the man and added certain herbs to the water that simply irritated the leeches. One by one, they voluntarily dropped off. William Arnott then proceeded to explain, each unforgiving injury... Each unforgiven injury rankling in the heart is like a leech sucking the lifeblood. Mere human determination to have done with it will not cast the evil thing away. You must bathe your whole being in God's pardoning mercy. And then those venomous creatures will let go their hold. It's what we've been doing together this morning. What we do every Sunday morning, what it would do us good to do ourselves every day, bathing our whole being in God's pardoning mercy, returning again and again to the foot of the cross, re-entering the throne of grace, the throne room of grace, to be reminded of the inconceivably great forgiveness of God towards us, that out of sheer love and mercy and compassion for us, he has pardoned us in full, nailing every last one of our debts to the cross, We have been forgiven beyond our wildest dreams. And bathing in that simple truth again and again and again, day after day, will enable us to forgive others, to forgive every unforgiven offense against us. Then bitterness will lose its leech-like hold on us. We will be set free, even as we set others free, by forgiving them. And extending such forgiveness without count, without measure, without a list on the fridge, will, it will help us to truly rest in and enjoy all the more our freedom and forgiveness in Christ. Could it be that there is someone you need to go and forgive in your heart, from the heart today? If indeed perhaps you've lost your first love for the Saviour, it might well be because there is someone you need to forgive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious word to us this morning. And Lord, for the gift of your inconceivably great forgiveness. One for us in Christ when you cancelled that record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross at Calvary. Merciful Father, please forgive us our grudging and sometimes even bitter attitude towards those who have wronged us in some way. Lord, as you have forgiven our great debt of sin, help us in turn to be merciful and forgiving toward others as well. And Lord, we pray, may each of us remember that for everyone who sins against us personally, we still sin against you immeasurably more, and yet you always forgive us. Never once has our sin caused us to forfeit your love and mercy to us. And therefore, may no one else's sin cause them to forfeit our love and mercy toward them. May we all, Lord, as your forgiven people, be known as a forgiving people.
people. In the name of Jesus, our Saviour, we pray. Amen. Amen.